This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, December 19th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to a brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you along every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. But if you can't listen live, which we do encourage you to do, there's a podcast for that. It is free. It is on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you need is right there. Other places for the podcast include foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and that whole team. Probably around 6.40, 6.45 Eastern time. That's on Fox News Channel later on this evening. Here's the lineup. For today's radio show, joining me later on this hour, Brandon Judd will be here, president of the National Border Council. The border crisis has been a disaster for two years. It's about to get much worse. Now everyone is admitting it and paying attention. And the way that we're seeing this spun is just extraordinary. I will expound on that thought here in just a moment. But Brandon Judd will join us later in the hour with his thoughts. It's in his area of expertise, of course. Molly Hemingway will be here in the next hour. News of the day. A lot to get to with Molly. Howie Kurtz on the media. The whole Twitter controversy. I'm sure we'll delve into that with Howie coming up in our middle hour. And two hours from right now, at the start of our happy hour, final of three hours, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican. He will be here looking forward to that conversation one more reminder which is you can follow us on social media here at the show guy benson show that's the handle at guy benson show on both instagram and on twitter all right let's talk about the border crisis a topic that we discuss quite a lot unlike many other people in the media late last week i was on the special report panel on fnc as i will be as i just mentioned again tonight and brett bayer the anchor made the point Not sarcastically, but quite accurately, that it's interesting to see some correspondents down at the border, news reporters on air from the border, doing reports on channels other than Fox News. Because for the better part of the last two years, this has been a see-no-evil type problem. As far as the Democrats and the news media, often one and the same, have been concerned. You'll occasionally, when there's a big, huge flare-up for some reason, they'll send some folks down there. You'll get a couple of sound bites or segments out of it, and then they all move on. They were very interested in the border crisis story when there was that opportunity 
to falsely smear U.S. officials of whipping against the Haitian nationals, remember that, a complete fabrication that was amplified, a smear, a slander, frankly, that was promulgated all the way up the various highest, uh, the very highest levels of the administration. The president himself weighed in on that wrongly. There was never an apology. Nothing close to it, as a matter of fact. That was just sort of like a drive-by attack at U.S. border officials, border patrol guys. Here was a chance to try to deflect from this huge failure and score some woke, politically correct points with some activists, and they didn't want to let the facts get in the way. So there was a little flurry of media coverage at that point, and then it was dormant and silent again for a while. Then we got a bunch of additional coverage when Republican governors started sending illegal immigrants to some of these blue cities and areas around the country, jurisdictions that had declared themselves sanctuary jurisdictions, whether that was New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago. Of course, the big one was Martha's Vineyard and Governor DeSantis, that whole move. Press went crazy. Here's a chance to go to Martha's Vineyard, do a bunch of virtue signaling, blame Republicans, And I think at some point they realized that they had walked into a trap and were talking about an issue that wasn't playing well for them. By them, I mean the progressive tribe, which entails the Democratic Party and most of the news media. So even though they get all whipped up about it, and it was an opportunity for them to really signal very, very hard about certain things, it wasn't beneficial politically, so they dropped that. And they've largely stopped covering Those busloads that keep coming, by the way, to places like New York. I saw the mayor of New York City once again raising the alarm, talking about how this is just this horrible thing that's being visited upon his city, and they need all these resources because they can't handle it. It's like, you know, hey, buddy, what do you think has been happening in Texas and border communities now for years? It's like, oh, now New York has a problem, just a tiny fraction of a problem that New York City politics helps fuel and support actually like proudly supports if you look at their bragging about their sanctuary status now they want i think i saw like a billion dollars in federal help because it's just so unfair to put these burdens on the taxpayers and the people of new york so now we are getting another little uptick maybe a surge if you will in media coverage And it's because Title 42 is about to end. Today is Monday. On Wednesday, the 21st, Title 42 is going away. We've talked about this a lot. There was an appeal that failed in court. It looks like this is going to happen. The pro-illegal immigration activists have been agitating for this now for months. The administration wants the COVID emergency to remain in place in certain ways for some of their other social experiments and spending. But on this one... COVID's over, and so Title 42 as an emergency authorization goes away, and one of the last remaining successful tools being used by American law enforcement at the border to rapidly expel people who come here illegally, mostly single adult men, is going to expire. It's going to be gone midway through this week. And all hell is breaking loose down there. I mean, it was already record-shattering in terms of the scope of this crisis. When I was down there months ago, 
did shows from the border, talked to a bunch of officials in Texas. Every single one of them, to a man and woman, said, if Title 42 goes away without something adequate replacing it that kind of keeps the authority going, as bad as it is right now, it is going to get much worse. And we are now on the brink of precisely that happening. The White House claims that they've been all over this issue for months, really since the beginning. And it's wrong to suggest otherwise. I mean, just the amount of BS being spewed by Corinne Jean-Pierre, reading out of her binder on a daily basis, is incredible. It's just so insulting. If you paid any attention to what's happening, have any understanding of the policy, cause and effect, incentives, any of that. You know what they're saying is completely false. And now I think they are recognizing, some Democrats are starting to panic because it's, you know, that the moment of reckoning or another moment of reckoning is very soon going to be upon us. And they're saying, okay, this is going to be so bad, it's not going to be avoidable. The images are terrible. They're getting worse. The overcrowding, people just out on the street. Just they cannot sustain this and it's also been true now for two years it's not like you know oh all of a sudden this just happened no this has been building and building and building 2.3 2.4 million illegal border crossings and encounters last fiscal year alone more than a million known gotaways a million since this president took office and what the white house and their allies in the democratic party and the media have decided to do, since they can't deny, right, they can't sort of just pretend like it's not happening for the moment, they instead are going to do what they always do, which is blame Republicans, who are still the minority party. They don't take over the House for a couple more weeks here. This was such a pathetic talking point that they tried a few months ago. It never really caught on because it was so preposterous, but they're back to it, I guess, They're cornered. They're desperate. This is the best they've got. The argument is because Republicans are noticing the problem and criticizing the problem and saying America has to end these open border policies, that is sending the signal that the border is open. So it's really Republican rhetoric calling out the problem that is creating the problem. See how that works? Isn't that clever? (laughs) It's, It's really not clever at all. In fact, it's so dumb that only the media could buy into it. And dutifully, that's exactly what they're doing. Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, who's actually trying to manage this crisis in a way that the federal government refuses to do, he was on ABC News yesterday. Martha Raddatz, liberal journalist, she asked a question. This is a straight-up Democratic talking point. They've been peddling this talking point from the White House podium in press releases in the last couple days she asked it like as a totally original, not like Democrats allege Governor X, Y, or this is like challenging Governor Abbott on this point. Just listen. It's just wild to listen to this question asked supposedly by a serious journalist with a straight face. Cut four. You talk about the border wall. You talk about open borders. I don't think I've ever heard President Biden say we have an open border. Come on over. But people I have heard say it are you, are former President Trump, or Ron DeSantis. That message 
reverberates in Mexico and beyond. So they do get the message that it is an open border, and smugglers use all those kinds of statements. It was, it was known from the time that Joe Biden got elected that Joe Biden supported open borders. Uh, it is known uh, by the cartels who have sophisticated information whether or not the Biden administration is going to enforce the immigration laws or not is known across the world, but most importantly, known among the cartels. You can hear the winds of BS blowing hard in the background as Martha spits out that question. I've never heard Biden say the border's open. I've heard Republicans say the border's open. Come on in, which they haven't said that last part. What they have said is the border's open because of Joe Biden's policies, and they're right. I just ran through the numbers. Roughly 2.4 million encounters last fiscal year. More than a million known gotaways, and I would guess tens, probably hundreds of thousands of unknown gotaways on top of that. People who are now in the country, living illegally in the United States, who we know came here in violation of our laws. And we just lacked the capacity, we lacked the resources, we lacked the manpower to go catch them because so many of our frontline agents are now doing processing at the border like you know secretaries doing paperwork shuffling all these papers and sending people many of them millions of them into the homeland to show up maybe one day for some distant court date that is the disaster that's happening right now you've had record numbers of deaths at the border among migrants pushing a thousand last year Border Patrol officers and other law enforcement have been killed. One was just killed the other day. There's been a spate of suicides among these officials who aren't being able to really do their jobs. It is a catastrophe on so many different levels. And you have the White House. I saw Corrine Jean-Pierre repeated it again today from the podium. Congressional Democrats looking at all of this recognizing that some chickens are coming home to roost and the pictures and the images and the political optics are going to be really bad in the coming days over the end of Title 42. And their solution, as usual, is political and completely dishonest. Their solution, and I guess Martha Raddatz took the ball and ran with it, is to say really it's the Republicans who are helping the cartels by using terms like open borders. That's what the cartels are using to recruit people. People are hearing Republicans say open borders, and they're coming. What nonsense. Republicans are identifying the reality of the problem. Right? The problem is not Republicans noticing what's happening. The problem is what's happening. And what's happening is a direct result of the failed policies that have been failing for two years to disastrous effect. 2.4 or so million encounters last year. So far, starting October 1st, the first two months of the new fiscal year, we're at almost half a million encounters already in October and November. We are almost certainly, at this point, past 150,000 known gotaways since October 1st. This is the new fiscal year underway, the problem worse than ever, and about to get even worse.
because of this Title 42 expiration happening because the Biden administration wants it to later on this week. And just the pitiful, feeble spin that it's because the Republicans are talking about it and criticizing the open borders, that's what's doing it. I mean, there aren't really any words to capture how ridiculous that is. How stupid they must believe we are. And how positively allergic they are to any form of accountability and owning up to reality on this. They're expecting to get an assist from the media, and I guess they're partially getting one. But I think the actual reality is going to speak for itself. Most people are smarter than that, no matter what they might think, over at the White House press shop or at the DNC or at ABC News or anywhere else. A lot more to get to on this and other topics just getting started on this Monday. It is the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Continuing on this theme, I saw a number of images and reports from Yuma sector in Arizona, from the Rio Grande Valley and Del Rio. Huge numbers, large groups of people crossing the border. Reports that there are 50,000 staged waiting to come once Title 42 has expired. 50,000 more just waiting. We've heard reports, including from our colleague last week, Bill Malugin, that some Mexican officials are actually escorting busloads of these migrants directly to the border. It's like, all right, let's make it the Americans' problem. That's what's happening. And the epicenter right now, at least, because it changes seasonally, it seems, but right now the epicenter of the crisis is El Paso, Texas, where the mayor, a Democrat, has now at long last declared a state of emergency in response to the border crossings. Remember, this was the mayor who had been allegedly pressured by the Biden administration not to do this, not to declare a state of emergency in recent weeks and months. Like, oh, we'll send you money. Please don't do that. It's all politics with them. This mayor had apparently said in meetings this is what was happening. The Biden people were asking him not to do it. City council members said this is what's happening. Then when it was reported publicly, the mayor denied it. Oh, no, that no, that's not what's happening. Oh, they didn't ask me to do that. He's just been saying it in private repeatedly based on reports. Well, now it's gotten so bad and is expected to get so much worse that now you've got the declaration of emergency in El Paso, where there's just thousands of people sleeping in the streets. Just a complete failure. Brandon Judd will be here to talk about it next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free every day. 
Joining us now is Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Council. Brandon, good to have you back here. Good to be with you. Thank you. Well, we just spent the first half hour of the show sort of setting up this conversation, talking about Title uh, Title 42, rather, and its imminent demise later this week and what that means. And I played a soundbite of Texas Governor Greg Abbott being interviewed by Martha Raddatz at ABC News, and she, as the premise of her question, just directly repeated what is now a pretty widespread talking point that we're seeing from Democrats. Let's, in fact, listen to the press secretary at the White House earlier today, Corrine Jean-Pierre, chief spokeswoman for the president of the United States, in Cut 27, trying to frame what's happening and what's coming. And there's estimates of 50,000 migrants in Mexico waiting to cross if Title 42 ends. Is that accurate? And would that overwhelm the Border Patrol? So, look, I, I don't uh, don't have a, um, a number uh, for you at this time. What I can say is that we know smugglers uh, will try to spread misinformation to take advantage of these vulnerable uh, migrants. But I want to be very clear here. Uh, the fact is that the removal of Title 42 does not mean the border is open. Uh, anyone who suggests otherwise is simply doing the work of these smugglers who, again, are spreading misinformation and which are which is very dangerous. A Democrat who represents Texas said something very similar. This was in cut seven. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar on Fox News Sunday. Listen to this. Having Republican colleagues go on national TV consistently saying the border is open, the border is open, they're the ones saying the border is open, um, I think their rhetoric has a role to play as well in what the cartels use. But regardless, I will tell you, the cartels will do anything possible to exploit these folks, whether they tell the truth, whether they lie, it doesn't matter. And then, as I mentioned, you had the question for Governor Abbott from Martha Raddatz saying the only people I hear talking about open borders are Republican governors and Donald Trump. Biden never says that. Brandon, you've been down there on the front lines. You know this issue inside and out. As we are approaching yet another big day of reckoning in this border crisis, the congealed talking point is it's Republicans discussing the problem of open borders that is actually causing the problem of open borders. I wonder how that strikes you. Oh, that, I'm sick to my stomach to hear any, anything that's, that's so idiotic like that. The only help that the smugglers need is President Biden's policy. That's all they need. It doesn't matter whether we get out there and we tell the truth of what's going on. Why shouldn't the American public understand what's going on? The smugglers are using President Biden's policies. And with, with his policies and his policies alone, they are enriching themselves. They are putting these, these, uh, these migrants in danger. Um, they are abusing these migrants, and President Biden is doing nothing to stop it. And then on top of it, he just deflects. He lies or deflects, and that's what we're seeing from this White House. Rather than dealing with this issue, rather than recognizing or publicly admitting that there is a crisis at the border, he continues to deflect. And the problem is, is the more he lies and the mainstream media doesn't fact-check him, then those lies become the truth. And that's the issue that we're facing today. I travel throughout the country, and I can tell you there are very few people that know what's actually going on on the border because the mainstream media constantly covers for this administration. Yeah, it's not an issue that they're really talking about or have talked about very much. But I think in my analysis here, Brandon, is because of the Title 42 issue and the huge influx and surge that's going to happen down there, 
it's going to be unavoidable. It is going to look terrible. It is going to be terrible. And they're not going to be able to just pretend like it isn't happening. And therefore, they're trying to rally around this talking point that really, yes, it's bad. And part of the reason that it's so bad is because these Republicans keep talking about open borders. I think that's their sort of damage control in advance. I don't think it's going to be persuasive to a lot of people because I think it's just ridiculous on its face. But they're trying. And, And to me, if this is the best they've got, is Republican rhetoric, not Democratic policies, is what is causing the two-year you know, record-breaking border crisis. That, to me, is really almost like a sign of desperation, if that's the best they can do. So, Guy, I, I, can't, I, I can't tell you how much I hope that you're absolutely correct. I can't tell you how much I hope that the media is actually going to cover this issue. The only reason that I'm skeptical of that is because – What we're dealing with right now is already a broken border. What we're seeing on Fox News on a day and on a daily basis is something that we've never seen in this country before. We had the largest single immigration um, event in our history, the Haitian migrant crisis um, in Del Rio. The, the mainstream media, they, they, they didn't cover it properly. Now we're about to see Title 42 go away, and we're, we're about to see an, an, a, a bigger explosion than what we're already dealing with, and I just don't know that the mainstream media is going to cover it. And if they continue to cover for this present, um, again, when I talk to people from around this country, the only ones that know what's going on are the ones that either watch or listen to Fox News. That's it. The rest of them that get their, their, their news from the mainstream media, they have no clue what's going on, and if they don't don't know what's going on, then this administration is going to be able to continue to lie to the American people because they're not being fact-checked. And that's something that we should all be upset about is that this that, that the watchdogs, the, the political watchdogs are refusing to do their job because it aligns with their personal ideology. And that yeah. is very scary that we've gotten to that situation in this country. Well, they're lapdogs is what they are. I If you're right about that, and if even with the Title 42 stuff happening, they still won't really cover it, I mean, I wonder, is the solution to really aggressively ramp up the busing to jurisdictions like, you know, the sanctuary cities? It got some attention, you know, Martha's Vineyard, sort of like pick your place to make a splash. That's one of the only ways that the media was basically manipulated and tricked, baited into covering this. I wonder if you have to just take that policy and ramp it up on steroids to make it unavoidable in these cities because you know the the inflow of illegal immigrants is too overwhelming in those cities to ignore. I, I'm just casting about for for something here because it can't just be these border communities and states taking the brunt of this as they have been for two years as it's about to get worse with a bunch of people out there lying and gaslighting about it. I guess you've got to bring it to their doorstep. We do. We do. And and when we do that, we actually get the word out. You know, I've, I've gone on Fox News on many occasions, and I've said that Eric Adams unwittingly became the voice of border security. Every single time that he would talk about it, every single time that he would say that what Governor Abbott was doing was wrong, then the mainstream media had to cover it. And when they, when they, when they covered what he said, then the public's like, what? There's, there's a problem going on? And they would, they would then have to look into it. Um, so Eric Adams actually started stop talking. Um, oh, I'm sorry, he didn't start. He, he stopped talking about this issue, and now he's talking about it again because he wants money out of right. this crisis. Yep. And so when they do that, 
when when these when, when people like Eric Adams, when the the mayor of Washington D.C., when Lori Lightfoot, if they talk about the issue, then the media is forced to cover it. And I hope I hope that we continue. I hope that Governor Abbott continues to doing to do what he's doing. And I, I believe that I, I have every confidence that he will. Um, I, I would I wish that Governor Ducey would have done more of what Governor Abbott did. If we would have done a lot more of that, you know, if um, if uh, Governor Ron DeSantis continued to send people to Martha's Vineyard, which, by the way, was not illegal. They voluntarily went to Martha's Vineyard. But if, if that continues to happen, yes, the media is going to have to cover it. And when they do that, then it sparks the interest of the, the American people. And hopefully they'll get their news from a, a, a more trustworthy outlet rather well, I mean, than um, the mainstream media. And the other side of this is it's not like it would be a manipulation to try to blow something out of proportion in – the public's mind. This is just trying to get attention to and poured upon an issue that is just completely mind-blowing in terms of the proportions of the problem. I mean, you don't have to exaggerate anything. The numbers are what they are. More than a million known gotaways since this president took office. They can squabble and quibble when it comes to, you know, is the border open or is it partially open? When you have a million people plus who've successfully entered the country illegally without getting captured in the span of less than half of a presidency, that is, in my mind, effectively open borders. And if you've got, you know, millions and millions of people pouring across the border, I think if if there is no other better solution, if this thing isn't going to get fixed, then what Ducey and particularly, as you said, Abbott have done and DeSantis and others, maybe every Republican governor in the country should get together and allocate some funds to get more and more people on these buses to send them to sanctuary cities and just absolutely overwhelm those communities so that other people are feeling what's happening. I, I, and I, that sounds like such a nihilistic, awful thing, but I truly don't know what else to do at this point, especially with this tipping point that's supposed to arrive on Wednesday, Brandon, let me ask you this, uh, and I've asked this now to a couple different guests. I'm torn on it. There seems to be almost like a disproportionate amount of attention on this very political question of whether or not Joe Biden should go to the border and see it for himself. And I know that the uh, the White House was asked about this uh, earlier today. Karine Jean-Pierre said right now the president, as he always has been, is focused on solutions which is a joke. He's not focused on solutions. They're ignoring real solutions. They don't seem like they want to send the president down there. I can't decide whether I think it would be useful for him to go because I feel like if he went, it wouldn't be with any genuine curiosity in a spirit of trying to get a handle on the problem. It would be purely a political like photo op to go there and say that he's done it without actually learning or changing anything so I don't really know. Where do you come down on that question? Would it be useful for him to go? I believe it would be useful for, for, for two different reasons um, if, if, in fact, he was actually coming down to try to solve a problem. Um, when, you, when you look at what happened back in 2019, um, uh, President Trump, um, he also dealt with illegal immigration um, that, was, that was out of control in 2019. And uh, when, when Vice President Pence went down to the Rio Grande Valley, he saw for himself – what was what was taking place, and we had immediate 
um, solutions to the problems because he saw firsthand. And so if, 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 if President Biden was actually coming down um, for the right reasons, yes, I believe that it would be good. If he's not going to come down for the right reasons, if he's going to come down just for, for a political stunt, I think that would also be good because what's going to happen is the cameras are going to come down and the cameras will, will be forced to actually look at what the issue is. And if they look at what the issue is, then, then more of the American public becomes aware. So, yeah. you know, you, 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 you talked about the gotaways and the gotaways are extremely important. In fact, I think that that is the most dangerous part of border security. But we also have to look at, at, at all of the evidence. And when you look at, you know, the estimates that, that prior to President Biden taking office, there were 12 million illegal aliens in our country. Well, just since he's been in office, like you mentioned, there's been more than 1 million gotaways. In fact, it's, it's, it's close to 1.2 million gotaways. And then on top of that, we have released into the United States nearly 3 million uh, – I'm, I'm sorry, nearly uh, uh, 4 million people. So when you look at that, we have added to our population – I'm sorry, released nearly 3 million people. We have added to our population just in two years. Two years, we have added 4 million people on top of the 12 million people, and those 12 million people didn't accrue uh, – I'm sorry, they, they started accruing um, after in, in 1986. So in two short years – we have accrued, um, you know, a third of what we what we got in what thirty forty years. That yeah, is no, a scary prospect. That is a very scary prospect, and the numbers just continue to go up. What we have released and what has gotten away in two years, that number is going to be much higher because of the explosion that we expect to come. Four million. I just want to let that sink in because I know we, we talk about this issue a lot, and some people might be like, you know. Come off it, guy. Like we know, but four million people, illegal immigrants, have entered the country. They've been released into the country, or they have been able to get in here without apprehension. Four million since Biden took office. That is more than quadruple the population of the president's home state of Delaware. It is a it an astounding number of folks. That is the policy that is reverberating around the world, and especially south of the border. It's not about Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis or anyone else criticizing open borders. It's that people are getting the message. If they come here, there's a very good likelihood that they will be able to stay or not even get caught in the first place, and they are acting accordingly. And unfortunately, when Title 42 goes away, that will be even more true, right? I think this is such an important point perhaps to end on, Brandon, if people feel like they've already and, and people respond to incentives, they're not stupid. They're coming now in record numbers for a reason. It's not Republican rhetoric or Democratic rhetoric. It's the actual policy outcomes. And if they already felt like accurately they had a pretty good shot to be able to stay if they cross the border illegally, once Title 42 and those rapid expulsions are no longer on the table, their likelihood of getting in, getting processed and released goes up even more. The incentive is even stronger. Ninety-five percent of the people that cross our borders illegally once Title 42 goes away, whether they, they evade apprehension or whether they get caught, 95 um, percent will make it into the United States. We will release 95 percent of the people that we take into custody. That means, guy, we've added 4 million people to our population since he's been in office. We expect those numbers to more than double. So you can expect another 8 million people in the next two years. That's going to be 12 million people. They crossed our borders illegally and were released or no, got insane. away into the United States just since he's been j- – j- 
in the four years that he's the the, the president. It, Those are just, crazy numbers. Yeah, no, it's like it's crazy. I don't know what else to say. It's insane. It's crazy. It's damaging. It's harmful. It's unsustainable. It's a, a total mockery of the rule of law, and at least for now, there's no end in sight, and the president won't even go down and look at it. We've got to leave it there. Brandon Judd, this issue is not over. Obviously, Wednesday is a tough day ahead and beyond. It's like, you know, one day the rules change, and then, boy, the, flood go, the floodgates are even more open. Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Council, we're following this closely. Brandon, thanks for your time. Good to be with you. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, a little bit of breaking news and a Fox News alert from earlier today. This was expected, but here's the story now from the Wall Street Journal. The House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol voted to make a raft of criminal referrals to the Justice Department for former President Donald Trump related to his attempt to overturn the presidential election. The committee took the action in the panel's 10th and final meeting this year as it concludes its 18-month probe. Key findings in the committee's investigation include allegations that Mr. Trump disseminated false allegations of fraud related to the 2020 election, provoking his supporters to violence on January 6th. The criminal referrals, uh, referrals rather, for Mr. Trump are the first time such recommendations have been made against a former president. So this committee is going away in the new Congress. Obviously, the Republicans are taking over. So they've wrapped up their work with just a few days to spare in the year, their 10th and final meeting today. And at that meeting, they sent criminal referrals to the Justice Department. That is not binding in any way. The Justice Department will do or not do what they want. But that is the latest and, I guess, final chapter from the January 6th committee in the U.S. House of Representatives, which changes hands in a few weeks. The next hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up with Molly Hemingway on tap. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour underway here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast always free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow us there. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'm on the panel this evening. A lot to discuss with Brett and the gang. That is Fox News Channel. Late in the 6 p.m. hour coming up on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow still on the schneid, down 162 points at the close today, ending at 32,755. And that market update, sponsored by Americans for Prosperity, they are committed to empowering every American to realize their own American dream by being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity. For more, go to americansforprosperity.org. We are very proud to partner with AFP. With us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author of two best-selling books. And Molly, it's good to have you back here, and Merry Christmas. Great to be here with you, and Merry Christmas to you. 
All right, I would like to discuss a couple different things with you. Let's start with Twitter. There's so much to say, and we will say more in the next segment and beyond that with Howie Kurtz as well. What I want to focus on with you is with the Twitter files, as they're being called, with more revelations, more information coming out just today, I am concerned by, and I think one of the more important wrinkles to all of this is, the role that the FBI played in some of this, because setting aside all the Hunter Biden stuff and the FBI's role there, one of the arguments, Molly, that we've heard over and over again from people saying, well, this none of this is really a big deal, is it's not a First Amendment violation, it's not the government, it's just a private company, and they can do what they want. Now, of course, many of those same people are going crazy now that a private company is doing things that they don't like. Uh, separate issue, but the First Amendment question hinges on governmental involvement. And as we are learning more about what the FBI's involvement was with Twitter and sort of this partnership that they had, I think that starts to at least get closer to a First Amendment discussion here. I wonder what you make of this. It's definitely closer, if not on its face, a First Amendment violation to have had dozens of FBI agents working to suppress the speech of American citizens, the the legal speech of Americans by coercing and pressuring this private company to do its bidding. And it wasn't just that they had this team of people monitoring the political rhetoric of, of Americans, but that they were telling Twitter to do something about it, and then also asking for things like, please give us relevant information, like where the owners of these accounts live. I mean, it's really disturbing to see it happening. It's the kind of thing you would definitely expect of a Soviet-style system, but not in this country where people are free or supposedly free to make jokes, free to discuss what they want about politics. It's just a tremendous meddling. And this isn't even dealing with their willful suppression of the Hunter Biden, Biden family business story as well. So there's a lot. Which which they said was misinformation. They sort of helped set the stage, the reports are, to dismiss the Hunter Biden laptop as misinformation or disinformation, even though they knew it was authentic. And there was a federal investigation already into Hunter Biden at that point. That is a separate but, I guess, sort of related issue. And the thing is, for me, Molly, like – I would have been probably disturbed if the FBI were not coordinating with some of these big tech companies on certain things, like if they weren't in contact with Twitter and Facebook and other companies and platforms to crack down on child pornography and rounding up the people who are involved in those abuses, or if there are people uh, perhaps using these platforms to plan attacks of some sort or sharing information about you know, how to build bombs or something like that. You can imagine appropriate areas for interaction and coordination. But I feel like Americans expressing their political beliefs is not really anywhere near that appropriate realm. Right. I am pretty radical in my civil libertarian instincts on how little I want the federal government working with private companies to suppress people's speech. But the example you gave of what they should have been doing with with pornography or affecting minors, you know, that's something where the FBI has a stated 
uh, track record of not doing a good job. You know, they had actual cases where they knew of minors who were being abused, uh, such as the Larry Nasser uh, case, where it was revealed that many agents did not do what they should have done to protect these young women. Um, there was almost no communication that we've seen thus far from the Twitter files dealing with a legitimate law enforcement purpose, such as cracking down on child porn, uh, but instead to focus on election meddling, which is why so many civil libertarians are concerned. Yeah. And I mean, maybe in the vast files, they were also doing appropriate things, but the point of this is to flag inappropriate things and, and perhaps beyond just inappropriate. And Molly, just quickly, one more thought from you on this whole Twitter business. Where do you come down on the fight that conservatives are kind of having internally about what the reaction ought to be to some of the new Twitter regime's decisions? Because some folks are saying, look, we've got to be consistent and fight for what we've always asked for, which is transparency, consistency, uh, you know, openness, that sort of thing. Other conservatives are saying a, a lot of these people who are squealing now were – actively hostile to any of that until it started to affect them. Let's just sort of sit back and watch them squirm. What's your thought there? The only decision that the new leadership made that I didn't like was the one that was most recent, which was banning links to outside platforms. To me, it makes sense if you view Twitter as a free speech platform, that that would also include links outside of the platform to other sources of information, even if it is sort of a direct advertising thing. As for the rest, I, you know, I think people really should have thought, like the, the banning of the six journalists or the suspending of the six journalists, they did link to information that is reasonably thought of as doxing. And so I can understand a suspension on those counts or um, other suspensions that related to a past history of doxing. I do think that it was amazing to see people say, wow, these rules are so vague and ambiguous. It's almost like that's the point <laughs> right. after years <laughs> of conservatives being suppressed this way, including you know, my senior editor, John Davidson, who's been suspended uh, for nearly a year because he tweeted something true. And our CEO, Sean Davis, who's been shadow banned for two years, they didn't care about that. They didn't care about deplatforming the sitting president of the United States of America, of deplatforming an entire publication. And now they're all upset because they got, you know, temporary bans to prevent them from tweeting for a few hours. It's just well, appalling. And they said that shadow banning wasn't happening. They just, you know, assured us that was not happening, and then it was, and then they're trying to downplay that. In fact, I'll be uh, really expanding some of those thoughts coming up in our next segment. I want to drill down a little bit on the, the rhetorical gaslighting that's underway. Now that sort of the jig is up in a lot of ways, they're still trying to pretend like it's not. Molly, we have a little less than two minutes left here in our segment together, so let's – this is probably the last time we'll speak on the air – uh, at least on this show, before Christmas and then the New Year. Are there any Hemingway family Christmas traditions that you are looking forward to this year besides, I believe it was your daughter who got super into cheese and charcuterie boards. I don't know if that's still a thing or if that was like a passing fad, but do you have anything you're really looking forward to? We are still in the midst of the cheese boards, which have expanded into like brunch boards and candy oh, boards and all sorts of That's things. Wonderful. It's awesome, actually. Um, but the main thing I like that we do is we celebrate all 12 days of Christmas, beginning on Christmas Day, going 12 crazy days 
we do gifts for each day. We have special time together each day. And so it's one of my favorite seasons of the entire church year because we do the full season all the way through Epiphany. So the full Advent thing. Now, I'm just trying to think, if you go, you start Christmas Day and you're doing a gift a day, you're still giving Christmas gifts well into January at that point. Exactly, all the way through Epiphany, which is January 6th. So it's very fun for the kids. Now, not every not every day is like a big gift, but um, at least you can also like appreciate each thing each day because you're opening mm-hmm. up one or one or two a day, and so you get to kind of play with the thing for the full day before you open up the next one. It's it's day eight. They're like, oh, mom, another signed copy of Rigged. <laughs> They like it. I tell you, they like it. (laughs) Well, uh, we like you. We love spending time with you here on the air. Molly Hemingway, our guest, our colleague at Fox News, editor-in-chief also at The Federalist. Molly, have a great Christmas. Very, very Merry Christmas to you and Mark and the kids. Can't wait to see you again in the new year, and we'll pick up where we left off. Awesome. Thanks, Guy. Molly Hemingway on The Guy Benson Show, back after this. I'm Guy Benson. I wanted to follow up and discuss the Twitter stuff just a little bit more. If you're on Twitter, just speaking for myself, I have found the endless discourse about Twitter on Twitter to be a little bit exhausting. Although we will talk about it even more coming up with Howie Kurtz. But I have a slightly different angle on this. Because one of the tentacles of this overall story is the Twitter files. Right from the previous regime, Elon Musk has given this information over to a number of journalists. They've done reporting on it, and some of that reporting confirms what many conservatives and critics have been alleging or had been alleging for years about some of the internal, secretive, opaque machinations at the top levels of that company to suppress or throttle or play down or deamplify or block certain people certain topics, certain tweets from going viral or being seen by large numbers of people. And this phenomenon generally was described as shorthand as shadow banning. And there were people alleging that they had been shadow banned. Why isn't this tweet showing up? Why isn't this a trending topic? And at every twist and turn, we would get denials from Twitter, the company, and the media would just, like stenographers, repeat the denials and say, as they so often do, that people who were making these other allegations were engaged in unfounded conspiracy theories, which also sometimes goes in the same box as misinformation. And look, there is such thing as misinformation. There are conspiracy theories. There's crackpot stuff out there that's baseless, that should be rebutted and shot down and dismissed based on evidence or lack thereof. But then there's also the not infrequent phenomenon of so-called misinformation or conspiracy theories actually having a grain or two of truth or more, or being completely true, as it turns out. And so the shadow-banning accusations and questions denied, dismissed, minimized as conspiracy theories, have been now confirmed by the Twitter files. 
And it's interesting to watch, and I've talked about this, the seamless, immediate transition from a lot of these journos, right, these lefty, progressive journalist types, who are saying, oh, this is nutty, this isn't happening, it's a conspiracy theory, too. Oh, well, we always knew this was happening, and it was justified due to fill-in-the-blank, misinformation or whatever. And then what they're also doing, which is the point I really want to make here, is some of them are saying, well, it wasn't technically shadow banning. And Twitter didn't call it shadow banning at the time. It was targeted deamplification or whatever the other terms that they're using. It's like getting hyper-specific and parsing specific words. Well, was it technically shadow banning? Is that what they were calling it? Or was it something else? So when these conservatives are saying, oh, look, there was shadow banning. Well, maybe it wasn't really actually shadow banning specifically if you think about it this way. And to me, this is obfuscation that misses the point by design. The point is to miss the point. The point is to zoom in super close on a particular term and then pick it apart and try to make it seem like it doesn't really mean everything that critics on the right are saying it means, and therefore it doesn't apply, and therefore they're still exaggerating or lying. So we got this whole series, like a little flurry of fact checks, and actually explaining about whether it was shadow banning, quote-unquote, all of it. Did it fall into that category? And it reminded me of something that lefties and journalists, who are basically all on the same side for the most part, most of the time, that they've done in other realms as well recently. For example, many of us on the right have decried and bemoaned rightfully Lockdowns, COVID lockdowns, which we mean as an umbrella term to describe heavy-handed, abusive, ill-advised government restrictions and mandates related to the pandemic. Sort of like the short, quick term is lockdowns. And then we get stories. There's like one in the Washington Post. Well, What a lockdown actually means is this, and the lockdown didn't really last that long. So it's really not true to say it's like, again, missing the point is the point. Some people even had the gall within that same little realm to say, well, it's not fully technically accurate to say that there were school closures because even though a lot of the buildings and classrooms were closed, the schools continued teaching and instructing through virtual learning, which we know was a disaster, by the way. They're like, but, you know, can you really call it school closures if only the buildings were closed but the teaching went on? It's like, guys, you're missing the point on purpose. There was another example, I would say, which is this, critical race theory. We've talked about that here as well, where as a broad term to describe a broad category of ideological or racialized indoctrination in schools based on identity and skin color and that sort of thing, that was broadly described as critical race theory. And these saying the same brigade, oh, oh, technically, actually... 
Critical race theory is only this very specific thing that's taught in certain law schools. So these right-wingers are lying again when parents can see what's in the curricula, where you actually have high-ranking officials sometimes bragging about how critical race theory, that term in particular, is infused in their lesson plans. But if it's only a description of one thing taught in certain law schools, then it can't really be true. So they tell us, missing the point on purpose, that the definition doesn't match the concerns and therefore it's just another one of these right-wing fever dreams. Missing the point is the point. And it's a form of gaslighting by the left and their allies in the media. And I just wanted to identify it, call it out, and give more examples beyond just the shadow banning lectures we're getting now. It's a repeat pattern, and I just wanted to flag it for you. Howie Kurtz up next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue... Here on this Monday edition of The Guy Benson Show, glad to have you listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcast, always free. And we welcome back now Howard Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. He's got his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, at FoxNewsPodcast.com. You can follow him on Twitter, a subject that we'll be talking about quite a bit here, at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah to you. Thank you, Guy. All right, Howie, so let's jump into this whole Twitter hullabaloo. I just talked about it in the last segment. We were discussing it earlier as well with Molly. I am a little bit exhausted of all the yelling and screaming. It feels like so much of Twitter has just been complaining and arguing about Twitter now for weeks. Elon Musk at the center of it. A lot of journalists spending a lot of time focused on this one social media platform that most Americans don't actually post on, uh, and yet it has been this all-consuming conflagration within journalist circles now uh, for, for quite a period of time at this point. What are some of your big takeaways about what's happening on substance and then the media's reaction to all of it? Well, first of all, I woke up this morning thinking, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking, podcasting, and doing the show on Twitter, and maybe I'll give it a break today. And then I discover, you know, Elon Musk has put up a poll saying, should I step down as CEO? And he loses, which, by the way, he had already decided he wasn't going to, you know, run it day to day forever. And of course, he'll still yep. be in charge. But leaving that aside, the whining and the sudden discovery of the importance of freedom of speech from all of these mainstream media types who, when it was conservatives being shadow banned and blacklisted and you couldn't search for their names and so forth, did not care. When the Twitter files came out, they would either ignore it or nothing to see here or uh, just not a story. And then when they and their friends get suspended for a day, for a single day, it's like, oh, this is such a grievous blow to freedom of speech. The democracy itself is being undermined. Uh, Just the hypocrisy is so thick you could cut it with a knife. Yeah, I mean, it's like they're treating this like some giant threat to the republic, and they're basically doing the work of the civil rights sit-ins or whatever, just on a a virtual platform, just the self-importance, self-aggrandizement, the victimization, the grievance, it's just too much. And here's the thing about it, 
Howie. I actually agree on substance with some of the complaints and criticisms of Elon Musk and the new regime at Twitter, where it looks like at least some of the things that many conservatives complained about for years did happen back then, even though we were gaslit about that. We've seen that through the Twitter files. And now it looks like at least in some circumstances, maybe it's more of the same, just in the opposite direction where you still have capricious decision-making, rules seemingly being created or changed or altered on the fly, decisions on suspensions or bans happening, and then sort of quick reversals. Elon's been out there tweeting through all of it, putting up polls and this sort of stuff. I know you mentioned he was like, should I, should I step down? He had already announced that he was going to have a full-time CEO in place at some point. So I think this was sort of just a publicity stunt on his part that worked relatively well. I think he would be wise to hand this thing over to someone who can think about it full-time and make you know, reasoned long-term decisions rather than sort of this manic thing that we've seen a little bit from Elon. I think it's fair to say, okay, how about we have transparency and consistency with a bias toward openness to the greatest extent possible – We can root for all of that, and I can agree with some of these journalists as they're making that case today, and they have been the last week or so, but I can also point at them and say, you guys either didn't care at all or openly cheered when this type of stuff was happening to other people, people that you don't like, people that you don't care about, people that weren't your buddies, people that weren't part of your little club or tribe for years And now all of a sudden, because you guys aren't so special anymore, or you guys are having things that you don't like happen to you, all of a sudden, this is a giant national outrage. It is really hard to take from some of them in particular, Howie. You know, the way you know that Elon Musk has damaged his reputation here is that some of his longtime allies have turned on him over this. So, for example, Glenn Greenwald, big Elon Musk defender on Media Buzz uh, yesterday, said, you know, to me, that um, the suspension of journalists did suggest that he was doing the same thing the old regime did, except in the opposite direction. Barry Weiss, who worked with him on revealing the Twitter files, posting something that said, you know, if, if one guy, one ultra-rich billionaire is going to um, start suspending people at will, then that's no different from what the others were doing, and he hit back at her. But the other thing here is, I do have some sympathy uh, on this whole business about uh, the college student who posts the real-time tracking information about his private jet. I wouldn't want that done. When I'm traveling with my family, you wouldn't. I don't think most people would. And so I do think he has a point there that that shouldn't be allowed in real time. However, some of the people that Elon Musk has suspended or and later reinstated or not, um, are people who had nothing to do with that issue, never posted a link to this uh, college kid, um, and just they were people who pissed him off in the past. And that, I think, is inexcusable. And he's even retroactively uh, suspended some uh, by saying that, uh, well, they did things in the past before I even owned it uh, that I didn't like. So we're going to slap you on the wrist here. Yeah, I don't know how that is a sustainable or reasonable policy at all. And I am trying, and I know you are too, Howie, to be consistent on this stuff. It's just really frustrating to see these born-again free speech defenders and people who are making all of these points about Twitter and how unfair this is and it's Calvin Ball and, you know, we need transparency, we need rules to be, you know, evenly applied and that sort of thing. 
We have been saying that for years, and they did not care one whit about it when it wasn't people within their little group who were negatively affected. They kind of liked it, I think, in a lot of cases, when it was right-wingers or conservatives or other people out there uh, you know, getting dinged, sometimes secretly by Twitter. Twitter was lying about it, and you had a lot of people in the media saying, oh, Oh, shadow banning. That's not real. It's a conspiracy theory. And if conservatives get banned, well, then that's probably a good thing because they've broken the terms of service or they would just completely ignore the story altogether. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, here's a couple names in national media who have been targeted for one reason or another. And all of a sudden, like they're they're rushing to the ramparts on this. It's just, I, I think, like fairly revealing about what principles they actually have versus just immediate personal or in-tribe interests that they're defending. You know, um, the fact is that if you dig into all of the texts and and memos and emails, as I have, there is no question on the banning of Donald Trump that Twitter mangled its own rules, uh, didn't do what it was supposed to, ignored its own officials who said Trump hadn't done anything wrong, not on January 6th, but with a couple of tweets he put up a couple of days later, they just wanted to get rid of him, and yet Mm -hmm. it's being treated as non-news. And I do have to say also, though, that Elon has emerged as a kind of a Trumpian figure who seems to be an attention junkie for putting himself at the center of the storm, maybe now he's prepared to step back or you never know but the one thing from his point of view is it drives traffic to the site 17 million people voted on this ceo uh poll in air quotes yeah i mean that's a lot of votes and people were like whipping votes go i mean it was just if the goal was to get more eyeballs and more clicks for something that he had already decided he was going to do and in fact announced he was going to do then you know that was like a little mini PR coup for him. Whether it's long-term good news for him in Twitter, I don't know. It's just so much to deal with every single day, and part of me wants to start to mute certain words and accounts on Twitter because I just can't take it anymore. I've made my position pretty clear, and I find to some extent a lot of this back and forth to be a, a bit boring and just hypocrisy all over the place. I'm hoping that it will finally just kind of settle and we can get back to the usual awfulness on Twitter. At this point, I'm nostalgic for the normal awfulness on that website that isn't endlessly fixated on the website and its owner itself. Meanwhile, Howie Kurtz, I did mention this last week, and I asked one of our guests about it, but I think you're probably in a position to give more of an analytical answer on this. It was announced just a few days ago that for the seventh consecutive year, Fox News Channel is the number one rated channel on all of cable. Not just cable news, but cable entirely, beating all comers, all competitors within our space and beyond our space, like sports and entertainment and all of that. Number one, seven years running. That's an achievement in a fractured environment where people have lots of choices. To be at the top of the hill, seven years running, is impressive. I know I'm proud to be a small part of it. You're a bigger part of it than I am. Looking at the landscape right now, looking at that accomplishment at Fox News, and there's got a lot of people playing an important role there, why do you think Fox has been so successful for as long as we have? Uh, Because it identified a need that wasn't being filled. 
And uh, originally, I mean, you have to live through the early days of cable news to remember, you know, originally it basically was just CNN, the most trusted name in news. Well, that is not quite the case anymore. Uh, and for Fox to not only overtake and just clobber, you know, most of the time Fox has greater ratings than MSNBC and CNN combined, especially since Donald Trump le- uh, left office and they don't have the sugar high of getting great ratings by bashing Trump 24-7. But it would have been inconceivable, I mean, maybe even five years ago, and certainly ten, uh, that Fox would beat all the other uh, things that are on cable, you know, whether it's sports channels or entertainment channels. I mean, it is remarkable. You have Greg Gutfeld, you know, beating people like Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon. So the there broadcast. really has been a sea change. And for all the people who don't watch Fox or think Fox is just um, a bunch of, um, you know, right-wing nut jobs, they don't really know that there is, you know, a, a, a wide range of opinions and personalities, some of whom they may like, some of whom they may not like. But uh, it's funny because when I, I have to watch everything, part of the job, and when I watch uh, CNN and MSNBC, often they're replaying clips from Fox that they can then argue about. I don't know yes. what they would do for content if Fox suddenly disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Last but not least, very quickly, some layoffs at the Washington Post. I don't celebrate anyone losing their job. I have seen that they've lost half a million subscribers recently. Part of that could be like the post-Trump era. Quickly, how are your analysis there? Well, more layoffs are coming, and the fact that they have shut down, they're basically moving away from the print edition. They've shut down the Sunday magazine. They've shut down the, uh, the Sunday Outlook opinion section, which I once worked on. And I think that's a shame. It gives you less and less reason to buy the paper on Sunday. Everybody wants to be digital. Everybody wants to have podcasts. I'm sure some of it is people being uh, fed up with predictable liberal bias. But if you add all those things together, uh, there's probably going to be more loss of jobs, as there is at CNN, where a whole new round of layoffs looks like it's in the offing. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz, Sundays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. You can follow him at Howard Kurtz on Twitter. Media Buzz Meter is his podcast. Howie, looking forward to joining you again on the TV side at some point soon. Very happy holidays to you, and we'll catch up, I'm sure, in the new year. Great. Merry Christmas, Guy. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Coming up in our next hour, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin will be here. Looking forward to that conversation. That's next. But first, an update, and it's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. This is the final conclusion of a story that we have been following now for years here on the show from Ohio. The Associated Press reporting this earlier, Oberlin College, has now completed paying out a $25 million judgment to an Ohio bakery that won a libel lawsuit against the school after a shoplifting incident involving three black students. The store's owners sued Oberlin College in 2017, claiming they had been libeled by the school and their business had been harmed following protests over the shoplifting. By the way, that was the claim in the lawsuit. It was also true and the claim was vindicated in court by a jury. It wasn't just a claim, a he said, she said situation. They told the truth. The school was in the wrong. The school took the side of a bunch of woke agitators, and it cost them tens of millions of dollars. Because not only did they sort of 
weakly take the side of students in a craven way. They actively join the protest and the accusations and the retribution-type actions against this bakery. And they were in the wrong. So it's not just about claims anymore. It's been proven. The story goes on. The years-long legal fight involved a school and town known for its liberal leanings and erupted into a debate over racism, free speech, and political correctness. A jury in 2019 awarded the Gibsons, the family, $44 million in damages. A judge later reduced the amount to $25 million. The Ohio Supreme Court in August said it would not take up an appeal of the judgment, which is our last update that we brought you on this. All of the money, $25 million, has now been paid, an attorney for the Gibsons told local media on Thursday. In addition to the $25 million judgment, the school paid more than $11 million in attorney fees and interest. So in all, well over $30 million, closer to $35, $36 million. And what I find interesting about this is the university, while they paid the money out, they never apologized. They never apologized to this family to this small business in their community that they helped slander and libel, that they lied about, based on an incident that was turned into a racial incident by some of these activists, some of the woke crowd on campus. And rather than staying neutral or seeking the facts or trying to be even-handed and fair, the school threw its weight behind the agitators behind the woke crowd, behind the identity obsessives who were wrong. In fact, as the story says, this lawsuit was filed after David Gibson's son chased and tackled a black male student he suspected of having stolen a bottle of wine in 2016. Two black female students who were with the male student tried to intervene. All three were arrested and later pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges. So because... That happened. Some people on campus decided, well, this is white supremacy or this is racism. And there were protests and boycotts and all sorts of things. And the school got involved and joined in on the smear. All this business did was protect itself in a very modest way against a shoplifting incident. The shoplifting happened. It wasn't a false accusation. It wasn't racist. The students eventually pled guilty to doing what they did. But this was turned into a vilification campaign against the bakery that Oberlin participated in. And now they've paid tens of millions of dollars for their woke sins. Hopefully that gets the attention of the administration and donors and alumni, for example. But I wonder what type of model they're setting for these students, what example they're setting for the young people on campus by never actually apologizing for what they did. Just an awful look from start to finish for Oberlin College, who finally, collectively, face some accountability. That's the good news. Congratulations to the bakery. They've got their money. Their reputation is restored. The school's, however, in my book, is not. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Glenn Youngkin, governor of Virginia. Straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour headed toward Christmas here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where they have expanded and where they sell their delicious product near you, thelongdrink.com. Our website is guybensonshow.com, free for all ages. We recommend it. In case you miss any of the show, we have a free podcast every day. It's on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us, please, on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. Joining us now is the governor of Virginia, Republican Glenn Youngkin, my governor. You can follow him on Twitter, at GovernorVA. And, Governor, great to have you back here. Merry Christmas to you. Guy, thanks so much for having me. Merry Christmas to you as well. And I got some shopping still to do before we get there, so I'm a little behind. Yeah, I have a lot to do, actually. I I probably shouldn't really admit that because sometimes my family and friends listen to the show, but uh, maybe I'll just pretend that I'm on top of it, and maybe after today's show, after special report, I'll go rushing out because it's kind of getting down to crunch time here. Governor, I want to start with a topic that we covered here on the show at some length last week. And it pertains to a very disturbing story in Loudoun County in Virginia, northern Virginia, that became a big issue while you were campaigning for governor last year. You had the temerity to pay attention to that story, alleged sexual assaults in high schools in Loudoun County, and it appeared that perhaps officials had misled or directly lied to parents about those assaults in service of some other social justice agenda that they were pursuing within the district. At the time, you were criticized by Democrats for demagoguing the issue, for making it up. This was some sort of right-wing invention. In fact, former President Barack Obama came to Virginia to campaign against you for your opponent, Terry McAuliffe, and he called what was happening in Loudoun, quote, a phony, trumped-up culture war and knocked you for noticing it or being upset by it and demanding accountability. Well, flash forward more than a year, and we had Luke Rosiak, journalist who's been all over this story, give us a few updates out of Loudoun County, where the superintendent has been fired, indictments coming down. Your reaction to what's happening in that part of your state? Well, justice is being done, and we completely uh, could see what was happening, and yet, you know, the left, the left liberal progressives simply were trying to hide it. They were trying to cover it up because it runs counter to everything that they were trying to do in Loudoun County schools, which is, of course, to push parents out of the lives of their children and to make decisions for kids and to do it in a way that was opaque and to do it in a way that was counter to everything that we hold dear. And so it took an election It then took an inauguration, and then it took an executive order to get an investigation going. And our attorney general, Jason Meares, team did a great job. And it took took a grand jury that worked throughout most of the year to really shine light on this incredible reality 
that there was a cover-up, that there were mistruths, and that the safety of Loudoun County students was put in jeopardy, that a, that a, that a dad who stood up at a school board meeting to, to protest the way that decisions had been made and to stand up for the rights of his daughter was ordered by the Board of Education to be taken out of the room by uh, the deputies there. I mean, this is just so fundamentally wrong. I'm so pleased that we now have truth and that people are being held accountable. But this isn't the end because I think voters need to hold the Loudoun County School Board accountable. And these were decisions that were made under, under, under their oversight. And we have, we have a superintendent that clearly, clearly violated the law and he's indicted. And uh, there's more to come here. And I do believe that Loudoun County parents all deserve an apology. And I think that Mr. Smith deserves an apology from everybody involved. And, and, and not to mention these young women, these young women who were, who were sexually assaulted. Uh, it's, it's just beyond belief that this happened in Loudoun County and that it was a cover-up. And then it took over almost a year of intense effort that was authorized by a new governor when we came in to get started on something that everybody knew was going on. I'm very pleased with what's happened, uh, and I hope all superintendents and all school boards across the Commonwealth of Virginia are wide awake to yep. their accountability to take care of their students and parents. Well, that superintendent is out of a job, under indictment. There's another top official in the district facing a felony indictment for lying about this as well. And I've heard a few people make the point that if you had lost that election, Governor, if it had been just a few points in the other direction and Terry McAuliffe had won and the Democrats were running the state of Virginia still, that this accountability, that this grand jury, that this justice would have never occurred in all likelihood. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with it. And I think that's what Virginians uh, voted for. Uh, and this wasn't Republicans against Democrats in, in, in Virginia last year. It was Virginians standing up for, for truth and accountability. And I was just so pleased to, to be joined with uh, Lieutenant Governor Winsome Earl Sears and our Attorney General Jason Miares in this mission, and in this case, Jason Miares st stood up uh, after I authorized him to go do this investigation and did great work. Meanwhile, this week, some interesting new developments in Virginia where in the Commonwealth, TikTok, WeChat, now banned on state networks and state technology. This is now happening in a number of states across the country, mostly red and Republican-led states, although we saw some good bipartisan movement on this in the U.S. Senate as well in terms of uh, federal devices and that sort of thing. Tell us about the process that informed your thinking on TikTok and WeChat and why you made this move. Well, this is work that uh, has been going on, uh, and our Attorney General, again, Jason Yaris, uh has been uh, deeply engaged in an investigation that I asked him to do. And we find ourselves now with a clear, clear, clear mission, which is to protect, to protect the, the, the uh, national interests, to protect our intelligence community, to protect Virginians. And there is, there is not a partisan moment here. And all governors should do this. And I think our, our uh, Congress should get moving and send a bill to the president. Uh, both TikTok and WeChat are just pipelines to the Communist Party. And uh, we've, got to, we've got to protect our information. And therefore, we did. We banned it on all state-run networks, on all, uh, on all state devices. 
And, uh, and this happened immediately. I was really pleased with how quickly we were able to move. Um, we, have, we have a very, very strong uh, information technology lead in Virginia, and uh, Secretary McDermott was able to go to work immediately to make sure that we get this off our networks. Governor, a moment ago I mentioned the election that you won in Virginia last year. You were also involved on the campaign trail this past year in 2022 in the midterms. I know you've been asked about this by a few different people. Martha McCallum, our colleague here at Fox, asked you about it on TV last week. Your batting average in some of the races that you waded into, uh, not great. Of course, as you said, you picked some tough races, and so that was probably part of it. I'm just wondering as you reflect back, what do you think Republicans might have missed or done wrong to not really win the type of victories that should have been possible under the current political circumstances, history, fundamentals, all of that stuff. And then I do have a follow-up, but just broadly speaking, what's your counsel to the party roughly a month after a disappointing midterm cycle? Well, Guy, let me begin. Of course, we're all disappointed. We expected to win more races across Virginia, particularly given uh, the emotions around the issue sets of runaway inflation and and uh, crime that has turned uh, our communities into nightmares uh, and and schools that have forgotten that their primary goal is to teach our children how to read and write and do science as opposed to as opposed to injecting politics into the classroom uh, and so we're disappointed that we didn't win more I engaged in races that were a lot like Virginia. Uh, governor's races where where Joe Biden ha- had won by 5, 10, 15 points, hard races. And I think what we learned in Virginia in 2021 is that we can flip those seats, but it is not easy. And it is it is an all-out affair. I had great uh, support from uh, uh, Republican governors in 2021, and I felt like it was a great opportunity to pick tough races and go to work. Uh, I was really pleased that we were able to uh, elect uh, Joe Lombardo. I think he is going to do a great job in Nevada, and they de- they deserve Joe Lombardo. And he was he was an outside winner. I mean, he was very much like me, where he he decided that he was going to run and try to bring common sense back into Nevada. Uh, I think this is this is the lesson, which is we have to have a plan that we can execute against and communicate it. Voters are looking forward. They want to know what their elected leaders are going to do in order to help them in their, in, in their aspirations and their dreams. And that's exactly what we did in Virginia. I think that's what was done in Nevada. I don't think we did as good a job in other places. Um, and what we also saw is that you know, Republicans voted for Republicans, Democrats voted for Democrats, and those swing voters went with folks who had delivered for them. And that's why we saw so many Republican governors that are incumbents win by such large margins as we've been delivering. Those are the big lessons. We've got to deliver. We've got to communicate a forward-looking vision. And then we've got to go do the work. And, uh, and I think we, we can and should win lots of elections based on the common-sense approach that we have in delivering outcomes around these most important issues. We're doing it in Virginia. We're getting taxes down. I'm going back for a second tax cut after $4 billion last year. And I actually I wanted to talk about the uh, the Virginia agenda in 2023 here in just a moment. Just one quick follow-up on 22, though, and the election cycle. You had endorsed Carrie Lake out in Arizona running for governor. She had won the nomination, heavily leaning into the whole stolen election 2020 stop the steal stuff. She lost a nail-biter, a tough one out there. It's over. It's been certified. 
And she just gave a speech this weekend where she said she's a proud, deplorable election denier. Her pronouns are I won. I just wonder, is that an endorsement that you stand by? Do you have any thoughts about her posture after losing that race? Well, let me begin with the fact that I deeply believe that Nevada, that Nevada is going to be better off with, with Joe Lombardo, and I think Arizona will be better off with a Republican governor. And I think that there's been huge strides made by Doug Ducey in Arizona, uh, school choice, low taxes, pro-business, yep. investing in law enforcement. And, uh, and I worry uh, about the long-term impact on those great policies um, with a liberal governor that they elected. Um, and, and so I was, I, I was very engaged with tough races. That's what I went to do, not to go for the easy ones, but to go for the tough ones. And I think that's what we have to do as Republicans is, is go to work on these tough races because those are the ones that make the biggest difference. And, again, that's what happened in Virginia. And do you believe that Carrie Lake did lose that election? It's, it's been certified. I know that there's still some court proceedings going on, and, and I think those are, those are uh, running their course, and I think it's time to move on. What we find is that we, 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 tend, we tend to take away from our ability to move forward because we spend so much time in the rearview mirror. We will move on and talk about Virginia 2023. You are my governor. I've lived now in Virginia for more than a decade. I'm excited to see what's coming down the pike. What do you have in store legislatively in this Commonwealth? What are you hoping to achieve in the coming year? Guy, we accomplished a ton in our first year uh, on a bipartisan basis in a state that people said we couldn't get it all done, and we did. And therefore, we have uh, very, very high ambitions for year two. Uh, we're going back for another cut, tax cut and rates to reduce the burden on Virginians and to let Virginians keep more of their hard-earned money in their pocket. Uh, we're doubling down again on law enforcement. Our Operation Bold Blue Line is going to drive to recruit 2,000 more badges into the Commonwealth of Virginia and get them on the street in order to make our communities safe and to fund prosecutors through our attorney general's office that will prosecute violent crimes and not let these criminals uh, f- f- uh, escape from um, the, the, the fact that they've committed a crime and they're going to they're going to be prosecuted. And if they're ha- if they're found guilty, they're going to do the time. That's what we have to do on crime. We're going to go to work again on education and uh, and fund into our lab school initiative uh, that has gone better than we would have possibly thought. And so we're going to fund more more into driving choice into our public school system. And finally, our behavioral health initiative, uh, I think, will lead the nation. And we have a behavioral health crisis in Virginia and across the country. Uh, We have a massive transformation underway in capacity, in workforce, in process and information uh, to deliver help when Virginians need it most. Um, We have a very aggressive agenda for this next year. Uh, we're going to work like crazy to deliver all of it. Virginians deserve it. And, and Virginia will and, and will be and should be the best state in America to live. And uh, that's my commitment. And we're working hard every day to make it so. Well, we'll be watching it closely with great personal interest, at least on my end. And I'm sure we will have you back when the calendar flips to 2023 and track that progress and see how things are going. In the meantime, though, It's almost Christmas time. I know that you and your family have a lot going on. We do appreciate your time with us here today, Governor. Have a very, very Merry Christmas with your family and with your staff, and we look forward to catching up in 2023. Guy, thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you, and God bless you.
Glenn Youngkin is the governor of Virginia, a Republican. Again, if you want to follow what he's up to in the state on Twitter, it's at Governor VA. And with that, we will step aside. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this item from WTOP, which is a local outlet in the D.C. area. Really nice story, an annual tradition. I'll just read. Thousands of volunteers visited Arlington National Cemetery on Saturday to place wreaths on the graves of fallen heroes for National Wreaths Across America Day. The annual event, now in its 31st year, pays tribute to veterans who died fighting for the country. Volunteers plan to place wreaths on more than 260,000 headstones, according to a statement from the cemetery. And to me, it's just a lovely thing to do. It's a statement and a gesture that we haven't forgotten our fallen, especially at this time of year around the holidays. And some people that I know quite well volunteer frequently for wreaths across America. Katie Pavlich, for example who is a very dear friend and someone who's well-known to the Fox audience. She was just on the show last week. She and her husband often go and participate in this, regardless of the weather. Sometimes it's nasty out there. But they show up along with many others to perform this act of service. And I think it's just a lovely thing. So hats off to them. And, of course, the ultimate gratitude is owed to the people who died, defending this country, serving this country, making the ultimate sacrifice. And I think it's good for Americans across all walks of life to bear that community and the fallen in mind, really throughout the year, but especially at certain periods of time. I saw Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was one of the volunteers doing this out in the cold on Saturday. So good for him as well. Just a wonderful tradition, now more than three decades in the making. The Guy Benson Show, coming right back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, we interviewed Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Council, about this impending debacle within a debacle at the border. The end of Title 42 scheduled for this week. Here's part of what Brandon Judd said will happen when that occurs. They don't seem like they want to send the president down there. I... Can't decide whether I think it would be useful for him to go because I feel like if he went, it wouldn't be with any genuine curiosity in a spirit of trying to get a handle on the problem. It would be purely a political like photo op to go there and say that he's done it without actually learning or changing anything. So I don't really know. Where do you come down on that question? Would it be useful for him to go? I believe it would be useful for, for, for two different reasons um, if, if, in fact, he was actually coming down to try to solve a problem. Um, when, you, when you look at what happened back in 2019, um, uh, President Trump, um, he also dealt with illegal immigration um, that, was, that was out of control in 2019. And uh, when, when Vice President Pence went down to the Rio Grande Valley, he saw for himself what was, what was taking place. And we had immediate 
um, solutions to the problems because he saw firsthand. And so if, 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 if President Biden was actually coming down um, for the right reasons, yes, I believe that it would be good. If he's not going to come down for the right reasons, if he's going to come down just for, for a political stunt, I think that would also be good because what's going to happen is the cameras are going to come down and the cameras will, will be forced to actually look at what the issue is. And if they look at what the issue is, then, then more of the American public becomes aware. So, yeah. you know, you, 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 you talked about the gotaways and the gotaways are extremely important. In fact, I think that that is the most dangerous part of border security. But we also have to look at, at, at all of the evidence. And when you look at, you know, the estimates that, that prior to President Biden taking office, there were 12 million illegal aliens in our country. Well, just since he's been in office, like you mentioned, there's been more than 1 million gotaways. In fact, it's, it's, it's close to 1.2 million gotaways. And then on top of that, we have released into the United States nearly 3 million uh, – I'm, I'm sorry, nearly uh, uh, 4 million people. So when you look at that, we have added – to our population, I'm sorry, released nearly 3 million people. We have added to our population just in two years. Two years, we have added 4 million people on top of the 12 million people. And those 12 million people didn't accrue. Uh, I'm sorry, they, they started accruing um, after in, in 1986. So in two short years, we have accrued um, you know, a third of what we, what we got in, what, 30, 40 years? That yeah, is no, a it's... scary prospect. That is a very scary process, and the numbers just continue to go up. What we have released and what has gotten away in two years, that number is going to be much higher because of the explosion that we expect to come. Four million. I just want to let that sink in because I know we, we talk about this issue a lot, and some people might be like, you know, come off it, guy. Like, we know. But four million people, illegal immigrants, have entered the country. They've been released into the country, or they have – been able to get in here without apprehension. Four million since Biden took office. That is more than quadruple the population of the president's home state of Delaware. It is a it an astounding number of folks. That is the policy that is reverberating around the world and especially south of the border. It's not about Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis or anyone else criticizing open borders. It's that people are getting the message if they come here, there's a very good likelihood that they will be able to stay or not even get caught in the first place, and they are acting accordingly. And unfortunately, when Title 42 goes away, that will be even more true, right? I think this is such an important point perhaps to end on, Brandon. If people feel like they've already – and people respond to incentives. They're not stupid. They're coming now in record numbers for a reason. It's not Republican rhetoric or Democratic rhetoric. It's the actual policy outcomes. And if they already felt like, accurately, they had a pretty good shot to be able to stay if they crossed the border illegally, once Title 42 and those rapid expulsions are no longer on the table, their likelihood of getting in, getting processed and released goes up even more. The incentive is even stronger. 95% of the people that cross our borders illegally once Title 42 goes away, whether they, they evade apprehension or whether they get caught, um, 95% will make it into the United States. We will release 95% of the people that we take into custody. My full interview with Brandon Judd of the National Border Council, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the entire show, start to finish, no charge, totally free, on demand, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, well, I'll admit it, 
finally, there was a soccer game that wasn't awful. And it happened to be the World Cup final. I watched most of it, believe it or not. We'll talk about that, plus a few other related updates when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Over 88,966 fans at Lucille Stadium. Gonzalo Montiel can win the World Cup for Argentina with this kick. Yes! Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. I'll be on the panel with Brett Baer tonight, coming up in the next hour. That's on Special Report, Fox News Channel, around 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you there. That was the call on Fox Broadcast Network yesterday of the World Cup final, Argentina defeating France in penalty kicks, which I do think is a strange way to decide an event of this magnitude. Like having a shootout for the Stanley Cup, for example, would just feel wrong which is why they have the sudden death overtime rule in the NHL, which I think is very dramatic and very stressful if you have a rooting interest in the Stanley Cup playoffs in hockey. I have made my position pretty clear on soccer. I watched a little bit of the Team USA games, rooting for them. Once they were out, I kind of lost interest. I did see that Argentina was up 2-0 at the break yesterday, And so I was doing some work. I decided to flip it on in the background. And shortly after I turned it on, France got a penalty kick goal, if I'm using that term correctly, to make it 2-1. to And then seemingly in the blink of an eye, they tied it up with another goal. It's like the most things happening I've ever seen in soccer in such a short period of time. My biggest complaint about soccer, it's not that I have a short attention span or... I'm just not sophisticated enough to understand how wonderful soccer is. I just think it is way too uneventful. And also so much drama from these guys and the flopping and and all of it. But what was great about this World Cup final is it was eventful. A lot of things happened. And it was exciting. So it was 2-2. to There were some huge chances for both sides. Then it went to extra time, and Argentina scored. And for half a second, I thought it was over. But no, it's not sudden death, so they were going to play on. But it seemed like Argentina, again, was very much in the driver's seat until France tied it up. Two goals in extra time, one aside. I mean, that is definitely entertaining. Action at both ends, a couple... Big saves and defensive plays. I'll admit it was exciting. Then it went to this, again, I think kind of lame penalty kicks thing. And the French just didn't get it done. The Argentinians, if I recall correctly, didn't miss. And they brought home the World Cup. And I saw some drone footage of the celebrations in Buenos Aires. I mean, my goodness, where it's basically a national religion down there. actually went to Argentina years ago on vacation, and went to a soccer game just because that's what you do. I think the team was called Boca Junior or something like that, and it was fun and exciting to be at a live event. Just transferring that level of passion onto the whole country on the biggest stage in soccer 
it's definitely exciting for them. A lot of disappointment in France, although they won it last time, four years ago. And I just had to admit, as not a soccer fan, if you are going to grab my attention and keep it, at least for part of one game, this would be the way to do it. So I watched with actual interest. And then the game was over, and I flipped over to American football, and I probably won't think about soccer again for four years. But at least the last impression left by the action on the field in this World Cup season, in my mind, was a positive one. Even Quiet Wyatt, not known for his fandom of sports. I would imagine, actually, he probably calls it sport while leafing through the Wall Street Journal in his cardigan. Even he found the game compelling. Wyatt, you texted the group about it, and I was surprised, given the source. Yeah, I mean, it was an exciting game. It really was. I turned it on right when uh, France scored their first goal, and then, like you said, they scored again right after that, and then it got all tied up, and it was just a really good soccer game. I've watched lots of soccer games in my time, believe it or not, going to my siblings' soccer Oh, right, your siblings play, yeah. But this was a good game, and it's nice to watch a good game of soccer because, like you said, sometimes it can be a little boring, but this this was a good final. And I would say at the very end, with all the pressure on, so the guy on France, their big superstar, he scored all of their goals. He had a hat trick. I mean, what a performance. You can't blame him for that loss. And then Lionel Messi, I think he's generally regarded as the best player in the world. I don't know if he is a runaway favorite in the GOAT category, like greatest of all time. I don't know enough about soccer. But for him to get the World Cup and bring that home, I think was very emotional for him. And just the amount of pressure, not just in the stadium with whatever, close to 90,000 people watching, but dare I say billions of people around the world maybe watching? Probably, certainly over a billion. I mean, the, the TV ratings globally for this have to be enormous. Dan is our actual soccer fan here. Dan, do you know what the ratings are? Am I wrong to say billion plus, maybe billions? I don't know the exact numbers, but I think you're in the ballpark. I mean, soccer is just huge around the entire world. Um, I was one of those billions watching on um, yesterday, and I was thinking about you because when Argentina went up to nothing, to nothing, I was, you know, this is kind of boring. I turned out, I tuned out a little bit, and then they came back. France came back, and I was like, I hope guys watching right now because I really this is the exciting soccer that I was been talking about the entire time. So I was very excited to have an exciting game for you. I'm not a huge fan of the penalty kicks at the end. It's kind of like a waste when you. By the play. way, I just did some, just to interrupt you, yeah. I did a little bit of googling. It looks like over a billion for sure, and possibly billions based on the 2018 numbers is what I'm looking at. But that sounds my right. guesses will get the final numbers at some point. Just a massive, massive audience. No, it, it was definitely exciting. Uh, if you're going to have a World Cup final with a lot of people watching, you want it to have like flashes of thrills and agony and close calls. It had all of those things. Maybe you can answer this question. Is Messi considered right now the best player in the world? And is he in the discussion for greatest ever? So this, people are saying, solidified him as the best of all time because he was chasing this World Cup win that he hadn't had. And so right now, I think people are saying he is the best of all time, kind of like the GOAT. 
Got it. World of soccer. I've actually seen him play. So for someone who doesn't like soccer, I'm now admitting to having gone to a number of soccer games, although I think I've now exhausted both of my examples. I was in Chicago a couple of years ago, and what do they call it? The America's Cup or something like that. It's sort of the North, Central, and South American version of the World Cup, just more regional. And Argentina was competing. And it was at Soldier Field in Chicago, and Messi scored a hat trick, and I was there to see that. So that was pretty cool. Now he's got the World Cup, maybe the cherry on this Sunday of an incredible career, with, I guess, the soccer maven saying he's now the GOAT. Meanwhile, while I enjoyed the game, I did not have the same sort of visceral reaction as I did watching the unbelievable conclusion of the Patriots' Raiders game in Vegas for the weekend. So it's not even that big of a game. Neither of the teams are really elite or that good. But, you know, all regular season NFL games have significance. And the game was tied. New England had the ball with time expiring in the fourth quarter. It seemed destined for overtime. New England ran a play. The ball carrier actually was making pretty good headway, had gotten, I believe, a first down, but it was now zeros on the clock. So he decided that the only chance they had to win in regulation was for him to lateral the ball back to a teammate to see if that person could then run toward the end zone. So the first teammate caught the lateral, had nowhere to go, decided to launch another backward lateral to another teammate to go sort of on the other side of the field toward the end zone. I suppose that was the intention. But this lateral was extremely ill-advised. It was intercepted by the Raiders. And the Raider defender sprinted the opposite direction into the end zone for a game-ending, effectively sudden-death touchdown with zeros on the clock. Their team didn't even have the ball. And there were zeros on the clock, and the score was tied, and yet they won because of an intercepted lateral that made absolutely no strategic sense whatsoever. And you could just hear it. This was a call on Fox, so the soccer call was also from Fox. This was a Fox broadcast in the NFL. I think it was Kenny Albert on the call, and you could hear the absolute shock in the voices of the announcing crew and just the bedlam among the fans out in Vegas, I'm not sure I or anyone else has seen an ending to a football game quite like this. Cut 23. And Stevenson is is inside the 30, flips it back. Stanford band nowhere in sight. Uh Uh-oh. It's picked off. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Incredible. Chandler Jones takes it in and wins the game for the Raiders. Have you ever seen an ending like that? I've never one? seen anything like that. I have no idea why he was doing that. Oh my goodness. Surreal. It's just crazy. So I went I went nuts and I didn't really have a strong rooting interest. It's like, see, this is the football that I'm actually a fan of. And then my Giants went on to beat Washington here in the DMV area last night. Uh, a little questionable call at the end, or lack of a call. People wanted pass interference. I say it's a good non-call as a Giants fan. Objectively, I don't know. Not so sure, but hey, it's a W. 
and uh, thus concluded another thrilling Sunday of NFL football. And I'm sure Christine was riveted as a hardcore NFL fan. At least she was for a few weeks. Christine, did you catch the end of that game? I actually did, and it was shocking. I kept saying to Bobby, what are those boys doing? What's happening? And he's a Pats fan. Oh, did he melt down? Yes. Yes, he definitely <laughs> melted down. It wasn't, it wasn't great for him. I can oh, – it just – it seemed like how how could that have just happened, but it did. That's why we love sports here. We don't do a ton of sports on the show, but from time to time we bring it up. Had to revisit the soccer question and then finish with a better sport, American football. Out of time for now. Back here tomorrow, same time and same place on the radio. TV Tonight special report. See you there. It's the Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.